Hello and welcome to The Thing About Golf, the podcast series from Golf Australia magazine that explores the many and varied reasons people get hooked on this ridiculous game. My name's Rod Murray and I'm your host for this regular dive into the psyche of golfers, a show where we meet everybody from world-class pros to lifelong double-digit duffers and just occasionally someone who doesn't play golf at all. That's the case for our guest on today's episode. Though Liz Smiley's no stranger to high-level competition, it's just that her experience came in tennis rather than golf. I'll reveal in a moment why Liz has been chosen as a guest for a golf podcast, but first, a bit of admin. If you're a first-time listener, a big welcome and great to have you aboard. We've been at this a while now, so if you haven't had the chance yet, make sure to check out the archives. We've chatted with everybody from our most recent guest, golf writer John Huggan, to some of Australia's best players, including the two Peters, Lonard and Senior. Without going through the whole roster, I can tell you it's been an eclectic mix of guests and golfers, and I'd be surprised if you didn't have a favourite after you've listened to them all. You can access the entire library at the Golf Australia website podcast page via the link in the show notes below, or you could avoid all that by simply subscribing to the show on whatever is your preferred podcast app. It is, of course, free, and subscribing means that you'll never have to go looking for us or just turn up on your phone or tablet every time there's a new episode released. If you'd like to get in touch with a suggestion or some feedback, you can contact me on Twitter at at Rod underscore Mori, that's M for Mary, O-R-R-I, or the show has its own handle at at Thing Golf, that's capital T-H-I-N-G, capital G-O-L-F. You could also go through Golf Australia magazine at at Golf Ost Mag, or look us up on Facebook, just search for Golf Australia magazine, or if you're really old school, send an email, golf at Golf Australia com.au Links to all of those communication methods can be found in the show notes below. That's enough of the homework. Let's move on to today's guest. And I admit to being a little out of my comfort zone when I first sat down with Liz Smiley at Royal Pines during the PGA Championship. Tennis isn't my game, and with Liz not even being a golfer herself, there was a real chance that this could have all gone horribly wrong. But thanks in no small part to the fact that Liz could hardly be a more delightful and down-to-earth person, those fears were completely unfounded. Liz might be one of Australia's most successful tennis players, but for our purposes and those of lots of others now, it would seem, as you'll hear, she's also mum to one of the nation's most promising young golfers. Elvis Smile is just 17, but he's already tasted success at the top levels of the game with a win at the 2019 Australian Junior title in Queensland. That earned him a place in the field for the Australian Open in December, where he finished a very creditable tied 33rd at one under for the 72 holes. Now, Elvis may or may not go on to pursue a professional career, but should he choose to, he will, unlike most teenagers with great potential, have right there at home a parent who understands just what it takes to ride the roller coaster of professional sport as a job. Having sat with Liz for almost an hour, I can say with confidence that in that department, Elvis is in extremely good hands. I hope that you enjoy, as much as I did, this wonderful chat with Liz Smiley. Well, Liz Smiley, podcast called The Thing About Golf. Here we are talking to a tennis player. What's that about? What do I know about golf? Not much. I watch a lot. I love watching and I... uh enjoy have enjoyed it for many years and a lot of my best friends are golfers whether they be on the you know the men's tour or the pga tour whatever 
I love going to big golf events and uh, now I just happen to have a son that plays golf, so I'm pretty lucky. We'll come to that in a minute, <laughs> but historically the connections between golf and tennis have been pretty strong. I guess we probably think more particularly in America they seem very tied together. There's that country club notion whether it be tennis courts and golf all in the one. Was that your experience of America and is it different here in Australia? Um, well, I lived in America. for My husband and I lived in America for a long time. You know, We lived in Florida and... You know, the Baker Finches lived there, the Grady's lived there, Payne and Tracy Stewart lived there. The, uh, so that was our home away from home. But tennis players just tend to go towards golfers. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of the guys like to play golf. I mean, I don't play golf, but um, it just seems to be a good marriage, really. At the professional level, I imagine the lifestyles are very similar. Yes, they are. Um, Travelling the world for months and months at a time, uh, not getting back to Australia very often. I think if you said to most people walking the street, oh, gee, you know, tennis players and golfers, they have a great life. Well, they do. But it's it's um, very competitive. It it comes with its own unique set of challenges. Any kind of professional sport, I guess, does, but certainly uh, golf and tennis does. When we think of professional golfers and professional tennis players, we all think about Tiger and Adam Scott and the guys who've got their own planes, don't we? And that's not the reality. <laughs> not there's the not, majority. There's not many Federer's, Djokovic's, Nadal's, Scott's, McElroy's and Woods's. For every one of those, there's a thousand that are trying to make it. At least a thousand, a thousand plus. But uh, look, everyone's got their own road to travel, haven't they? And everyone's level of success is different. Obviously, when you're in that rarefied air of multiple major winners and you talk about the greatest players of all time, whether they be golf or tennis, um, they're, they're on a, in a different sphere, aren't they? Have to you, 98%. you peeked into that world? Is it different to the world that the rest of us occupy? I feel like you would have had a peak in there. You've been a major winner in the doubles, which yeah. is it's um, close, isn't it? It's not quite that sort of thing. Yeah, but have you, I've have been you lucky inside? enough. I've been lucky enough to be Flying surrounded private by a couple of times. No doubt. No. Oh come <laughs> on! You've been in a jet. No, I haven't. Of course, you have. I haven't. But really, you know, it's interesting because um, over the years, um, Ivan Lendl's a really good mate of ours because he was coached by Tony Roach for many years, and Mad so too with two daughters who are very good at the game. Ivan's got five daughters. Five daughters. Are they all good at the game? Um, Not as good as... The two that I've heard of. But um, he's a lucky man. He's got five daughters. But um, that's um, rarefied air. And I was, um, you know, lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time around Samantha and Ivan. And they... um, it, It is a different world. And it's a world of just in amazing focus and goal setting and... Um, sometimes getting your goals and sometimes not. So it's a roller coaster, just like anybody else's. I think, you know, Ivan, if you sat down with him and obviously he was number one in the world for four or five years almost straight, you know, he had great rivalries against, um, you know, people like McEnroe, against people like Connors, and golf is just the same. You know, you have these great rivalries. I mean, right now we've got with Roger and Rafa, mm-hmm. they're, on, they're only one grand slam separates them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Roger's probably going to go down as probably one of, well, if not the greatest, certainly in the conversation, isn't he? Greatest tennis player of all time. You know, also Tony Roach coached him as well. So we've had a bit of a peek into that world, but it's, um, it, it's quite stressful being in that world because the 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 margins are so minute of winning and losing and and goal setting and achieving and and failing just like everyone does mm-hmm. 
are they different, the people? And is the way the world mm. interacts with them different? Most we definitely. treat them differently. Yeah, the, you know, the really great players, and I'm sure, you know, golfers are no different to tennis players. They have something, don't they? Mm-hmm. They have something that comes from within that drives them to, to, um, be the best or to keep winning or whether it be number one in the world, whether it be major titles and, and the focus is, you know, really quite extraordinary. Um, for example, like Ivan used to live um, not far from the US Open, where they played the US Open now, not back in the day, obviously, but, you know, he would get up in the morning, he'd practice at home, he'd drive to Flushing Meadow, he'd play his match and he'd drive home. And when you talk about that level of, um, of, I guess it's discipline really to know exactly what needs to be done to get the best out of every aspect of your game. The, the one percenters, I think they refer to them as they're probably the point oh one percenters in reality, aren't they? At the they're top absolutely yeah. the very best, and um, yeah, those, and that comes from within. You know, no one can give you that. You can have coaches and you can have, you know, um, head guys and you can have physios and you can have all sorts of trainers. But I think that that bit that's inside you that makes you do that a little bit more is um, something that no one can give you. No, absolutely. You're born with it. Did Mike Clayton once tell me, did, did I? You don't you? believe anything I Clayton know. says to you, first of all. <laughs> that's exactly what he said about you, funnily enough. Did Ivan used to ride his bike until he was physically sick and then turn around and ride home? Yeah, probably. <laughs> that was, his, uh, Ivan, was one of his training methods? Yeah, Ivan and, and his – for a while there, like all he wanted to do was win Wimbledon, of course, because that was the only mm-hmm. major that eluded him and, and he didn't do it. And I heard him interviewed recently and he – the question was, you know, how did you reconcile in your mind that you never won Wimbledon? And he looked straight at the – person asking the question he said i lose no sleep over it because i know that i did everything in my power to try and do it did i do it no but i don't lose any sleep over it because i know that i couldn't have done anything else could not have done anything more more. that's remarkable for anybody who's never really tried to if you try to lose weight or you once you get into that kind of thing it's amazing how much that actually is to be able to tell yourself do you know what i did everything Mm. that's a that's a hell of a lot to do, isn't it? Well, I think you have to do that in sport because yeah. there's always something more that you want. It's the nature of the beast. If you have 10 Grand Slams, you want 11. It's like Serena now trying to break Margaret's record. You know, if you have 22, you want 23. If you want, have 23, you want 24. But you've got to be able to reconcile if you don't get to where you where you aim to get to because that happens all the time yeah. in sport. Nobody you don't gets get all of it, do they? Because they do not. And the most driven want more. Regard doesn't matter where they get to; they've always wanted more, so they can never be correct completely. Stable. And that was the next thing they asked Ivan. They said, um, "What would you change about your career?" And he said, "I'd like to have won more." <laughs> wow, <laughs> that right. was a pretty tough thing to do. Yeah. Win more than Ivan. We look on as spectators. You can't help it, and particularly in the modern era, and particularly in golf, you look at the money, and that's what you think. I suppose it's a part of the reward, but people like what you're talking about, like Tiger, like Lendl, like McEnroe, it's it's not a part of their thinking, is it? It doesn't need to be, which is nice. We'd all love to not have to think about it, but it doesn't really play a part, does it? No, it's a byproduct. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I say to any young kids and, you know, even my son. There's some, certain things that you can't control. So what you can control, you need to focus on, and that's either playing good golf or 
playing good tennis or whatever it is because everything else will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. And obviously if you're ranked 200 in the world and you're not getting into major tournaments, I'm talking about tennis tournaments mm-hmm. now, then you need to improve your ranking. But I can remember girls you know, looking at their ranking every week but you know what? You can't look at your ranking. You can't look at, oh, you know, if I, if I hit one shot better, then I'm, this is going to happen to me. I'm going to make the cut or I'm not going to make the cut. Because if you get caught up in all those byproduct things, then you lose focus on what you need to be doing, which Just is this shot. Correct. To the best of your ability. Correct. And, and have practiced well. this shot enough to know that you can hit this shot. Correct. When the time comes that Correct. you need to hit it. It's a hell of a mental journey sport. As a it's character building. <laughs> well, is it? I wonder. Is it? Well, it damages because, people too, doesn't it? Some well, people. Well, I mean, the people that don't come back, um, they stay damaged, don't you? But that's the challenge of being a professional athlete is to know that there's going to be obstacles, there's going to be hurdles, but you, you ultimately you have to use that in such a way that it makes you better or else it's what's it for? It's for naught, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, you, you have to use all your experiences that you have and try and make you a better athlete, a better player, whatever it is that you're trying to achieve. Because, you know, if you think about the foot putt that you missed, you know, to lose the Masters if you're Scott Hoke or whatever it is, if you let that play on your mind, then you can't possibly achieve what you're trying to set out, what you're trying to set out to do. And that's the challenge of any athlete, I think, is to try and overcome the things that whether they're injuries or whether it's bad play or to try and overcome those and use them in such a way that it's ultimately it's going to make you better. The other thing we as the fans think is that it's about the physical, don't we? We think it's about the putting stroke and the swing. And I think a lot of pros get caught up in that too, but ultimately those aren't the things that decide who wins. I'm sure in your career you've beaten better tennis players who are better than you. Mm-hmm. That, tennis is interesting, sense? though. Like, you and I can go out and play tennis. We and really couldn't. We could. <laughs> Trust we me. Could. I could Maybe hit. with your knee the way it is, we could, but not <laughs> 10 years ago we I, couldn't. I could hit a bad shot and you could hit a worse shot and I still have the possibility of winning the point. But in golf, it's so unforgiving. You, know, you can hit a bad shot and it never, ever goes away. It stays there unless you're playing match play. So, obviously, you have to credit everyone with a certain level of physical accomplishment. Whether you've got a swing like Adam Scott or whether you've got a swing like someone that doesn't have a great swing. No, no one comes to my mind right now. <laughs> it's tough in the pro. Let's say Nick Ahern, who, when you look at him on the range, seems an unlikely person to have beaten Tiger Woods twice at match play. Mm. So, you know, Nick obviously has something, doesn't mm-hmm. he? Um, he wrote a book about it, which is fantastic, by the way, which Elvis should read, or if he hasn't already. I've read it, actually. Oh, okay, yeah. Nick played with Elvis yesterday. Oh, fabulous. Two, two lefties together. No, uh, Nick sent me a text. He said, I'm used to getting outdriven by 50 <laughs> metres on every hole. I'm looking forward to it. But, yes, obviously the people that can control what they do physically through what they have in the mind is, um, you know, that's a skill in itself, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, because you look at – if you go to an event and you see everyone hitting great drivers on the range and you didn't know who they were – you would think, gee, that guy, how's not he not number one in the world? Exactly right. Or, you know, tennis players, you know, he's quick, he's, he's, he's got a great serve and he's got this. Why isn't he number one in the world? But once again, it's those things that happen to you, whether you use for good or use for bad, and make you ultimately better. Mm. Is all of this stuff helpful for Elvis? How's the – I imagine it must be a, an odd position in some ways for you to be in because your mum – Mm. But you're also 
accomplished athlete sports person who's lived that life, he clearly, well, if he doesn't want to, he's certainly good enough should he want to, mm. to look at pursuing that life. Is this a strange time for... Well, I'm not really the golf person. I just make the lunchbox. You know, I'm just mum. Does, does he like the lunchbox? Or does he, I think you told me he doesn't like the lunchbox. Well, sometimes so it much. ends up in the bin. But <laughs> it's my husband, Pete, who mm-hmm. um, understands the golf swing and, you know, knows exactly how Elvis hits the ball and how far each club goes and, you know, what he shot on the 16th hole at Capera when he won a couple of months ago. And he remembers all that, which is great. Like, that's his area. You know, my area is other things. Some of the that, stuff we've been talking about. Yeah, a little bit like that. Hopefully, you know, to give Elvis some kind of insight into what it's like. And he's been to Wimbledon. He's been to the Australian Open. He's been – and all my kids have. So they've been exposed to – they've been exposed to some of the best athletes in the world and they've seen them practising and, you know, they know how hard they work and, you know, he knows Ivan really well and, and so – He's, Elvis is lucky, you know, because he's seen things that maybe other people has, haven't seen. And he, he, I don't know if he's got some idea about what's required, but hopefully he's got some idea about what is required to be as good as you would like to be. Good as you, you sort of can be. What's mm. going on with Australia's tennis players? All their kids play golf. The Ruffles is mm. playing golf. Yeah, Peter Elvis Quarter's kids. Golf. Yeah. Peter Quarter's kids play golf. Um. Is there a natural thing where kids go, oh, tennis, mum did that or dad did that, I'll do something different? Is it mum's got an iPhone, I'm getting a Samsung. Is it that kind of thing? Or is well, it I know different? Anna Maria and Ray. Like Ray, who is Ryan's mm. and Gabby's dad, he took me my very first team to go overseas when I was 16 or 17, whatever. So I've known, and Anna Maria played on the tour herself. So they've all been exposed to tennis at one point. Um, but I think it's important as parents to – to expose your kids to whatever you can. I mean, our both our daughters were exposed to tennis just like Elvis was, but to for them to you know, make their own choices. Mm-hmm. I know with Gabby, for example, it took her a little bit longer. She played competitive tennis, tennis until she was right. about twelve or thirteen, and she was, or well, maybe even a little bit older, and she was really good mm. at a at a national level. And so for her to make the switch and to be so good so quickly, I mean, that even I think probably surprised Anna Maria and Ray a little bit. Um, Ryan, I'm not too sure about if he play, I'm sure he played tennis as well, but you know, as parents, it's our job to expose our children to, and, and let them try and find their own way mm. without sort of saying, well, you have to do this or you have to do that. Is that more difficult than it sounds? I suppose if your life's been tennis and it's given you so much and you've taken great joy out of it, the natural assumption is, well, that anybody could get all of that great joy of it and you're in a position to help or to give your kids that or... And then the other part of that being you've also seen what professional athlete life is like at the top mm. and you know what the downsides are and you must you can't help as all parents do but think kids are going to have hard times in life no matter what. But you know what sport can be like. Do you see the question I'm asking? Is it... Well, I mean, it actually doesn't matter if it's golf or tennis really, doesn't it? No, no. That's all, so I'm yeah. supposed to not golf, but just that mm. whole notion of... Well, I think it's a gradual progression. I, you know, you expose your children to, you know, sport or music or mm-hmm. drama or whatever it is, and then they're the ones that are responsible for taking it to the next level. And then we just try and facilitate whatever that is. But, you know, if if Elvis turned around tomorrow and said, well, I don't want to play golf anymore, you certainly 
not going to make him play golf, no. are you? So I think it – I mean, he's 17 now and, you know, trying to make his own decisions and what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. And that's an important part of what he's going to need later on. Um, you know, you talk about the life of a professional athlete, particularly coming from Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, we're blessed and we're cursed all that's at once. Right. You know, because you, you've you got a lot of travel involved. and Cannot you know, live here and have a successful professional golf career. That's well. absolutely true. But having said that, I saw Hannah Green being interviewed the other day and they said to her, the question was, what has been the difference this year as compared to previous years? And she said, the fact that I could come home, reconnect with my coach, I've done it more often this year, every couple of months. So, you know, you could put Ash Barty right next to her and Ash would have given the same answer. Mm. You know, so you have this pull back to Australia, whether it's to to see your coach, whether it's to sit on the beach in Noosa and do nothing, mm-hmm. whether it's to reconnect with family, reconnect with friends, and you know that's a really important part of your happiness off what you do, off the golf course, off the tennis court, and you know it's difficult coming from here, mm-hmm. but um, it, it's it's easier than it used to be. Was that a possibility for you? Oh no! I mean, we, regular trips home to Australia. No, not really. I mean, remember, I when I started travelling, um, Pete was playing the circuit as well, so we went away together. I think we had probably about oh, five thousand dollars between us, or ten thousand dollars between us. He was playing his tournaments, I was playing mine. So, you know, you couldn't afford to come home, no. could you? So you'd stay away. Couldn't afford to ring home sometimes. No, and those aerograms. Yeah. You know, you'd write those aerograms. Yeah, that's that You'd right. have to stick down on all sides. <laughs> that's right. Um, so <laughs> it, um, but you know, the it's it's part of what you have to learn how to do as a professional athlete mm-hmm. from this country. Yeah. And um, if you don't like to travel, or if you don't do that well, it's it's a struggle, it's right? a Deep climb. Yeah. Mm. So, some are more naturally predisposed. Greg Norman's That's always true. seemed very happy in, in America. He's been a regular visitor to Australia, but I don't, I've never felt that he had that pull to come back here, whereas Adam Scott, I suspect, sneaks back to Australia far more often than we realise. Yeah, to go and surf. Surf's up on the, the road. That's right. Surf's <laughs> on the Gold Coast here. So part of the, perhaps the keys to his success. What don't people appreciate about that? I suppose we kind of touched on it. It sounds fantastic, doesn't it? You travel around the world and you do it. But you never see anything, do you? You don't actually no, get I, to do anything. You no, know, I think if you talk to most people out in the street, they play tennis and they play golf recreationally, don't I they? I wish they could play more every day. They do. But, you know, it's it's not in their mindset to be going to Paris for 10 years or 15 years and not going near the Eiffel Tower. Or They don't understand. You did that, didn't you? You yes. went for a decade. I did. I did. I, I never saw anything because you go to the hotel, you practice, you train, you, you recover, you travel, you, and people, you know, think, oh, gee, you've got a great life, which, which you know. Two weeks in Paris. And yeah, yeah. At the end of it, you've got a big check when you're yeah. finished. I mean, where's the down to that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> where's the down to that? But, you know, you, you can't expect people to understand that it, it's, you know, physically and mentally and emotionally very difficult, mm. very difficult. You hear people, athletes say it all the time, and particularly Australians, it's the time away from family and friends, and I think we all think sometimes time away from family and friends would be quite nice. Thank you very much. When it's uh, when it's not a choice and when it goes on and on and on, if you could imagine, I suppose, 
being on holidays for three months. If anybody's ever gone on a long holiday, it's a lot less fun after the first two weeks, isn't it? Living out of that suitcase, finding somewhere to do washing, mm. not being able to just ring your mum or your friends or go to the pub and have a beer, pat mm. your dog. I imagine most of these guys don't have a dog, and if they do, it's they don't get to see it that often. Really mm. little things that we don't realise we've got that you'd miss. But there's well, some they're of those- the important things in life. Uh, they're the things that help to give you perspective. Mm-hmm. And they're the things that um, get you through when possibly you're not playing that well, when you could be injured or because it happens to all athletes, it, it's part and parcel. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, you, you need to rely on or, or have that stability in your life. And if the only place you feel really at home is here, yeah. um, you know, then it, it's lots of trips home, isn't it? Yeah, you better make the effort. Mm-hmm. To come. Mm-hmm. You've clearly remained very down to earth. I can't imagine that's necessary. It would be easy not to, I imagine, in the world that you've moved in for a long time, being a successful professional tennis player and the world that Elvis is likely to move into. If you get to the upper echelons of professional tennis or golf, you could be a complete prat your whole life and get away with it, couldn't you? You'll find people who will enable that for a fee. So how do you, yeah, how do you not I, do I that? Think- well, once again, you have to rely on the people around you. And, you know, it takes a village, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The reality is it takes a village to bring up a a well-adjusted young person in your home to adulthood, regardless of any kind of professional aspirations in sport. So whether they become a tyre fitter or a golfer Correct. doesn't make any real, real difference. Correct. So it's really important to surround yourself with people who are understand that, well, first of all, know you and understand you, but you have to be able to um, know that those people that are in your circle are the ones that you can rely on. And, you know, if you're out of line, then they tell you you're out of line. Mm -hmm. Or if you need to do something better, they tell you you need to do something better. Um, That's a two-step process, isn't it? They've got to be prepared to do so and you've got to be prepared to accept the information. And I guess when you're paying people too, you know, mm. I, I'm sort of put family members aside for a second. You know, when you're paying people, to, whether it's your agent mm-hmm. or whether it's whatever it is, trainers, that, that, whatever yeah, it might be, um, they they might be a little bit um, mm. circumspect, might they? Of course, and, <laughs> right, and understandably and rightly. Well, you would know. You've had a relationship, no doubt, with sponsors. Mm-hmm. They pay you to promote their product, mm-hmm. and so that relationship, they have the hand, mm. the power. But everyone also, you know, you're not going to take people on board unless you feel like it fits well with you, are you? If you feel like it's going right. to detract. Some, some well, if you would have seen it, I'd imagine, people yeah. who've made some of those mistakes, surround yeah. themselves with yes people. Yeah, but that you would hope to think that that doesn't. You know, sort of last very long. Well, you know, maybe it does with some people. See maybe the, they you just see like the cogs people. spinning there. Yeah, You've I'm just, just thought of a think, couple of people and thought, you know what? Uh, maybe not everybody realizes that. <laughs> I won't ask for any names, but when we turn this off, we'll talk. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, you know, when it's all said and done, everyone's just trying to find their way in life, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Everyone's just trying to be happy. They're trying to do things that they love. Um, if you're good at it, it's a, a bonus. I, you know, I say it to my son all the time. I said, you're very lucky because some people really love doing something, but, you know, they're not very good at it. And other people are really good at something, but they don't really love it. Great love for it. But, you know, he's got both. He's got the love and he's pretty good at it. Mm-hmm. So that's just the, the tiny, tiniest bit of the population that have that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you have that, you're pretty lucky. But I also think that golf in particular, which doesn't – well, certainly 
doesn't happen now in tennis, but golf has this unbelievable foundation of juniors coming through clubs. I mean, I've seen it at Southport Golf Club. So Elvis that where Elvis was, started at Southport? Yeah, wow. he started at Southport. That's lovely and humble, which might be quite important. Well, it's it's vital. It's not only is it important, it's vital. You know, he was playing there from the youngest age, probably eight, nine, ten, and there was this group of men that used to tee off at 749, and they were called... The 749ers. Of course. Australia, what else would you call them? One was a – Snowy or blue, perhaps. That would be the other option. One was a dentist. One was (laughs) an architect. One was a lawyer. And when Elvis got to a certain age and one of their group dropped out, they would invite him to play. So Elvis was an honorary 749er at one point. And, of course, he got a little bit better and he didn't play with them as much and then he became the touring pro of the 749ers. <laughs> and then one of the 749ers, the dentist, was came and watched him play wow. in in Sydney last Fantastic. week. So and you just don't get that in in tennis. That I mean, people stuff is it's got nothing to do with golf. That's about people and growing up and and being exposed to yeah, older people. The Australian Juniors was played at Southport this year. And Elvis won and you know, that's how he got in the Australian Open and he had all these all these people just following him and, you know, wishing him well and and it's just it gives you an unbelievable sense of um community. Community, isn't it? And golf does that. Mm. Which is unbelievable for young people. And he's already got a dentist, an architect, and a lawyer for life because what he's been a 749er. Want- he's set, isn't he? <laughs> There's a reason you can't get a dentist appointment on a Wednesday afternoon, Liz. It's because they're all at the lakes. Uh, I imagine he would have been a popular four ball partner in that group too. When they threw the ball at the bloke, he'd be trying to maybe manipulate it so that they might land close to each other. You've watched Elvis grow up. Parents watch kids grow up. That's what they're doing. He's still a kid at 17. Mm. Elvis, if you're listening, apologies for that. But that is the truth of it when you're as old as we are, what do you see in him that's going to hold him in good stead when those, as you say, inevitable hard times come? Dad does the golf swing stuff, mm. but the other stuff's the more important. Once the golf swing's at a certain point, the other stuff's the more important. That's what makes happiness and success possible. What do you see in him? He dances to a different beat, mm-hmm. my son, which I've seen um, athletes – who are just like that, and it's a really important characteristic to be able to do what you know that you need to do, and it mightn't be popular, and it mightn't be um, the thing that everyone else is doing. Um, I said to him last week after he played at the Australian, I said, would you like to go down to the President's Cup? He'd never seen Tiger play before. And he said, no, no, no. After I get home, I've got a club fitting, I've got this to do and I've got that to do. So even though he probably would have liked to to gone to the President's Cup, he came home, he had two days off and then he was back into it again. And, you know, I said to him, "How if you're a professional golfer, I said you finish on the Sunday, you travel Monday, get to the course Tuesday, play the Pro-Am Wednesday and you tee it up Thursday. And he looked at me and he said, yeah. He Rinse, said, repeat. Yeah. Next week and the week after yeah. and the week so, after. But I think it's important. Plus, he's also very stubborn, <laughs> which is a good quality. Yeah, it's no, well, it's essential, know. isn't it? It is. It's, it's absolutely essential. Triggsy, who, you know, Ian Triggs, who's coached Elvis since he was forever, since he was seven or eight, he, he turned to me a couple of weeks ago and he looked at me and he said, um, you've got a very stubborn son. And I said, I know it's great, isn't it? And he said, yeah, it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. 
So I think with golf in particular, you get a lot of people coming up and mm-hmm. giving pearls of advice on whatever it is. But you have to be single-minded enough to know that you're you're not going to be rude to anyone. No. But there's certain information that you don't take on board, and that's about ninety nine percent of the information <laughs> that people give you. Of course. So you have to you have to be just a little bit um, uh, yeah, you block it out. Yeah, you got to be a bit quirky. Yeah, to, to to that sounds very mature. What you've described there, Elvis. Do you think he's a mature young boy? I think any kind of sport gives you that sort of um, um, reference in relation to what you want to achieve, and sometimes it doesn't quite happen. You know, because most of the time in golf, I said to John Sendon last week when I or two weeks ago, I said we were talking about how how much golfers don't win. Mm-hmm. Because of course my reference is tennis, mm. so I look at someone like Novak or Rafa and Roger, and their winning percentage is so high. Whereas I look at golfers, and they can go literally for two, three more years and not win. You might win three times in a career. That's a decent and, career. And John Sendon turned to me and said, "He said, you know what, Liz? If you're a golfer and you win ten percent of the time, you're number one in the world." Yeah. I think Jack's percentage is maybe less than 10. I think Tiger, was, he was about 18 there for a while, 80%, and that was just unthinkable. So you know what? That's a lot of losing, That's isn't a it? lot of losing. That's a lot of losing, a lot of coming second and a lot of not winning. So golf is, is character building because it's hard to win. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> really you, hard you, to you win. You really get used to not winning yeah. too often. I wonder if that's healthy. Golf's a funny game. It does funny things to people, doesn't it? Do you ever worry about that? It no. can literally send people quite mad. Absolutely it can. I think the whole stationary ball thing mm-hmm. and just having all the time to think and therefore overthink. Mm-hmm. You can hear it laughing sometimes, can't you? The ball, laughing at Well, that's you. why I don't play. Why would you want to play such a stupid game? Well, see, I look at you're going to think, well, if I just hit the ball over there and you're going to hit it back, what's the point? I might as well just stay here and we can have a chat. Um, yeah, golf does. And, and there certainly is um, – uh, that certainly comes into consideration, doesn't it, in relation to what it does to you mentally because you just have all this time to analyse and second-guess yourself, I guess. Mm. You know, to say, gee, if only, if only, if only that had happened. You're losing. Well, all that time, yeah. plus you're, you're almost never winning, so there must always be some reason why you didn't win. Mm. Especially if you know you're good enough, you physically you've got all the tools, and yet you mm. still didn't win. It's hard. It's crazy. The sport's game. really hard. Yeah. I remember Brett Ogle told me once, and this always stayed with me, that his first year on the PGA Tour in America, he played his first event. It might have been Hawaii, and he shot 65 in the first round. He said he'd never played golf better. And not only that, he walked off the course. He played in the morning. He walked off the course, and he knew that nobody in the world could play golf better than that. That's as good as golf could possibly be played. And he went to the supermarket, and he bought some things for dinner. And he got home and turned on the TV, and Davis Love shot 63. And he said, all you can do is take your hat off and say, wow, that's genuinely – I know what it took to shoot 65, and you've gone too better. So Ivan Lendl's words come back to me. You know, I couldn't have done any Could better. Could not have done any more. Couldn't have done much as I could do, and someone did more. Well, hats off to them, Mm. and I'll try again next time. Mm. So it could be infuriating, couldn't it? Can you be too nice to win, Liz? Surely you're too nice to have been successful. No, I was awful. Did you used to not be nice? (laughs) Is is that what you're telling me? You're trying to make up for something? No, I'm an Aries. We're awful people a lot of the time. (laughs) Um, No, can you be too nice? 
You're asking the wrong person because I was never nice most of the oh, time. Come on, I've, no, I've no, met no, you it's twice true. now, and you've been no, delightful. It's true. Is your yeah, whole but you're not interviewing. Changed? You're not interviewing my husband. He'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> we could pick any husband out of the crowd here, Liz. They're going to tell us the same thing about their wife. That's how that works. Well, I think were you some... different then when you were a player? Were oh, genuine? Yeah, yes. Really, yes. all the time at home. Oh well, I mean, the large percentage of your time is spent mm-hmm. on the court and trying to beat the person down the other end. So, you know, it's that competitiveness that... That's very um, direct intensity, which it isn't in golf. No. You're friendly with the people you're Unless playing you're with. you're playing in match play. In match players. And you're like but, Tiger and you take your hat off before the ball <laughs> drops and stuff like that. But... Um, How good is he? He's very good. <laughs> How he's good very is good. he? <laughs> very good. I think they got better, didn't they, as they went along. But anyway, the President's Cup. He was... Yeah, he was... Even if yeah. you didn't understand golf, you watched him last week and said, yeah. well, he's clearly better than all the rest of them by some margin. Yeah. You could just tell you could. by watching him. You could. Um, yeah, I, uh, yeah I, I think probably in my youth, you know, if I could replace what I know now and mm-hmm. put it in my 20-year-old self, there's probably things I would have done differently mm-hmm. and Hopefully a little bit better, but obviously, you know, you, ca- you can't do it. But I think age just gives you perspective, yeah. doesn't it, in life in general, regardless of whether you play professional sport or not. And hopefully you mellow as you get older and, you know, other things replace um, everything depending – your happiness depending on whether you win or lose. And that can- that does happen when you're oh, young, doesn't it? And definitely. changes as you get older, Definitely maybe? does. It seems to have changed for Tiger, I suspect, and ironically has made him – as successful and competitive as he was when he was young. He's sort of gone full circle. Yeah, and I look at Tiger and I look at Roger. Mm-hmm. And to me, when as you get older, your good is still really good, but your bad is a lot worse. Mm. Well, that's what I found as I got older. My good was still pretty good, but my bad was really not good. Not good enough. Whereas I, if I look at Tiger and I look at Roger in particular, I think, oh, how does how's he maintained the level of bad uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> still the good is good, but the bad is – the differential is less. We misunderstand, don't we, us amateurs, I suppose, particularly with golf. We think if we meet someone who's shot 63 one day that they're good enough to be a pro, but the truth is if their bad is 80, that's what determines whether you're successful. And the, the key to Tiger Woods for the best part of 20 years has been turning 75 into 70, sometimes 68. And he says that too, doesn't he? Yeah. It's uh-huh. absolutely the key to it. So you, don't, he, you don't win with your best golf. When you, when he plays his best golf, he wins by 15 at the US Open, and we all stand back and go, You applaud. That's just unbelievable. Mm. But that's pretty rare. Even for him, he doesn't often have his best golf. He's an interesting study in that too nice to be win idea, isn't he? Because I feel like Tiger Mark II that we're seeing now is a much more human person than Tiger Mark I. Yeah, it's I. called maturity. Well, and he's had, and a, life he's had a perspective change forced on him, obviously, mm. through all sorts of outside mm. influences. But still he had to find a bit of niggle for that Sunday singles, which didn't actually exist with Abraham Answer and that whole You got what you wanted or you got uh, what I you asked for. It, he got it kind of thing. Do you have to You know what? I don't think you lose you don't lose that. You just other parts of your personality mellow, don't they? You played tennis and you'd want to win, wouldn't There's you? No way I'd let you hold serve. No way. <laughs> no. And I'd hit everything to your backhand. <laughs> yes, an excellent ploy, by the way. And anything wide rate to take more than one step, you'd be on a winner there. As well. And I wouldn't give you any easy balls. No, I'm sure no. you wouldn't. And no you? close line calls. Just, You'd just need the review. For, uh, yeah. Just to set me up. You don't lose that. For what? What do you see in the future when you look ahead, Liz? Um, 
because you've stopped being Liz, haven't you? Become Elvis's mum. I know, and the and the lunchbox mate. Yeah. So when did that happen, and how you? That's a gradual process. But remember, Elvis. Like I've got a twenty seven year old daughter oh. and a twenty four year old daughter. Um, one lives in New York, one lives in London. So you know, Elvis. Elvis did say to me the other day, oh, mum, you know, you've just dropped the ball with me. I was like, what do you mean dropped the ball with you? He said, oh, you know, you were tough on Laura, you were tough on Geordie and, you know. I said, oh, I don't know, mate. I think, you know, I think you you mellow and you get a little bit smarter and obviously you want your children, from a mother's point of view, you want your children to be fulfilled and happy and my eldest daughter just gave birth to a little boy. So Pete and I are grandparents now and – um, we haven't met him impossible. yet. Honestly, yeah, he's that would make new... me, oh dear, no, his that's name's no good. Rocket, can yeah. you believe he's oh, really? Rocket? So <laughs> Elvis said to me, Mum, why did they name him Rocket? And I said, Mum, do you, uh, I said to Elvis, I said, do you know another Elvis other than the dead one? And he said, oh no, good point. So unusual names are in the family. But I think from a, a mother's point of view, you just want your, your children to be happy and fulfilled. And, you know, if that happiness and fulfillment takes Elvis to career of golf, then I'd be happy. If he decides he wants to do something else or it doesn't happen for him, then um, you've, you support them, don't you? That's what you do yeah, as a parent. Do you? That's can't a parent. take it back. There's no warranty. No, <laughs> you've no. Got what that's you've got. how a parent. That that's uh, and that's the greatest thing is is seeing you your kids do what they love and kid what they want to do and feel fulfilled and. And um, be happy in their life. I mean, it seems so simple, really, doesn't it? If it was that simple, we'd all do it, wouldn't we, Liz? And we know that that's not how it works. We've just got an audience because we're in the uh, office here at Royal Pines. The PGA's unfolding. You live nearby, so that's what we chose to do. We've got an audience here now, so I want you to tell the Elvis story. David, stick around for this. This uh, is fantastic. Well, I've got a couple of what Elvis bra- Pete breaking into Graceland and going to Elvis's grave. Let's start with that one, well, and then we'll tell us. Then I'll, I'll get you to tell the one that you told us on Australian Open Radio. Well, you? Mike Clayton tells that story that Pete was invited into Graceland for a cup of tea. Now, I'm not too sure where he got that from, but he certainly wasn't invited in for a cup of tea. He was in Memphis, and he he's wanted. A, he's to, an Elvis nut. Well, he's, an he's Elvis nut. saw Elvis in concert with John McEnroe. Right. The year before he died, 1976. But that's another story in itself. Okay. So Pete gets to Memphis. His plane gets grounded. So he says, right, I'm going to go because he wanted to see where Elvis was buried. Okay. So he rents a car and he says to the lady at the airport, you know, how do I get to Graceland? <laughs> and she said, look, you go down here, you go down here, and you come to a road that's got no sign and then you turn left and it's just there on the whatever. So And Pete said, well, how come it doesn't have a sign? And she said, well, every time they put a sign up, it gets stolen. So anyway, Pete finds it. He knows Graceland because he's seen an aerial from from. So he knows where he's going. So he parks the car right up to the wall, onto the thing, over the thing he goes. And so he he's going to the meditation garden, which is where Elvis is buried. So he's, he's going there and he sees a digger. So he thinks, oh, no, you know, they're digging him up. They're digging Elvis up. What's going on here? So he gets over there. And you know when you're doing something that you probably shouldn't, you know you shouldn't be doing, and someone says, hey, what are you doing? So he gets close, and he sees this big digger, and then this man comes up behind him. He says, hey, what are you doing? And, of course, Pete, you know, was surprised to say the least, and he said, you're digging up Elvis. And he said, no, no, actually Vernon died who was Elvis's father. Uh-huh. Actually, John Fitzgerald often calls Pete Vernon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, so Vernon had just died and they were digging his grave and burying him and, and you know, Pete was, oh, no, you know, Vernon's dead. That's not, that's not good. <laughs> so then the man said, look, you really can't stay. 
So anyway, so he he escorted him out. So there was no cup of tea involved. No, no. I don't know where Clate's got that from. <laughs> Clate never gets the story. But right. the other story about Priscilla was a, a pretty good one too. She was here in Australia. Um, oh, she was promoting a line of organic linenware. <laughs> so she was in, in Sydney and she was at the um, Observatory Hotel. Little, I don't even think it's a hotel anymore. But it just a really small boutique hotel down at the rocks. And we had been to a wedding the day before. Tony Roach has two daughters and his second daughter got married and we were all meeting at the observatory the next morning for breakfast. So there we were. We pull up to the observatory. Elvis goes looking for Tony. So he gets out of the car. Elvis is about four. Four or five, right. He's about three or four. So he gets out of the car, goes running into the lobby I go running in after him. Pete comes running in after me and there's only two people in the lobby other than us. So there's this man standing in the corner and a lady with big glasses, big hat, very unapproachable looking, you know. So I didn't really pay much attention to her. So Elvis is running around. So Elvis, Elvis, I'm saying, come back here right now, right? And so then (laughs) he, he sees Tony up on the mezzanine level of the hotel so he goes up the stairs, running after Tony, and so then, but the elevator comes, right? So the unapproachable lady gets in, the man she's with gets in, Jackie and John get in, who are the bride and groom, and Pete and I get in. So we're in the elevator and I'm looking up to the mezzanine level yeah. and I see Elvis up there. But she can't see, this lady behind me can't see that I'm pointing up to Elvis and it's saying, Elvis, you know, you can't leave me like that. You better come down here right now. There's going to be no swim. Anyway, so then I see Tony up there and I said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. I know he's safe. So the doors close. So out of all the people in the world that can be behind me, of course, it's Priscilla, right? <laughs> Presley. So, and she, she thinks I'm talking to her dead husband because she can just see me pointing up to the sky saying, you better come down here right now. You shouldn't have run off on me like that. You had no right to, you know, you're not going to have a swim. If she so anyway, gun. It, well, <laughs> she thought she was in the lobby with a crazed woman, in, in, the, in the elevator with a crazed woman. So the doors close. We realise who it is, Jackie and John, and we realise it's Priscilla standing behind me. So the doors close. So we go up to the first level. The door's open. You've never seen anybody get out of an elevator quicker ever. She probably wasn't even her floor, right? So she goes bustling past me. The man with her stays in the elevator. And so Pete, you know, he can't stand it. Pete was ready to run off down the hallway after her. So I pulled him back. I just want to ask you what Elvis was really like. So I said, Pete, stay there. So he turns to the man. He says, oh, look, you know, I'm terribly sorry. You know, our son's name is Elvis. Can you please just apologize to Priscilla? We, whatever. So he said, oh, no, 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 she's fine. She's fine. You know, she wouldn't have minded and whatever. So then, um, in years after that, we met a man by the name of Joe Esposito mm-hmm. and Joe was Elvis's road manager, his best mate. And we actually became quite friendly with him. We, Went to dinner with him a few times, and we told him the story about Priscilla, and he told Priscilla told he did he <laughs> identified her. this yeah, crazy woman, this crazy Sydney. woman, <laughs> yelling to the heavens, "You've got no right to leave me! You know, come down here right now, Ross. There's no swim." So eventually, she had a bit of a laugh over. Oh, that's just but bizarre. What are the chances? Ah, oh, pretty slim, I would have thought. Pretty slim, pretty slim, slim which is what nothing. makes it such a fantastic story. Yeah. But there's lots of Elvis stories, but I'm just going to leave you with those two. I'll turn off the tape, and you might be able to give me a few. <laughs> Liz, it's been fantastic to chat to. 
you. And we've barely talked about golf, really. We've talked about all the stuff around it. Best of luck to you. And best of luck to Elvis. And I'm sure that you'll be proudly watching on as whatever happens with his golf happens. But thanks for joining us on The Thing About Golf today. It's been wonderful. My pleasure, Rod. Anytime. Oh, don't say anytime. I might have to get you back. <laughs> what an absolute pleasure and a breath of fresh air Liz Smiley is in an era where, let's be honest, overbearing sports parents are the stuff of reality TV. We wish Elvis all the best with his golf for the future, and I can't help but feel that Liz might make another appearance on this show at some point in the future. Before we go, a special thanks to David Hogman, manager at the RACV Royal Pines Resort, who lent us his office during the opening round of the Australian PGA Championship so that we could record that interview. Extremely generous of you, David, and I urge all of our listeners to make the effort to go and sample the Royal Pines layout. That's it for episode 10. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell a friend or fellow golfer you think might also like it. The more, the merrier, as they say. And we definitely want to keep producing these episodes so we can't have too many people listening. Next time on The Thing About Golf, we'll be meeting with one of Australia's most quietly successful career touring professionals. David McKenzie is a name that'll be vaguely familiar to most. And after more than 30 years making a living on the world's fairways, I can assure you, he has acquired plenty of fascinating golf wisdom to share. So come join us to hear David's story next time on The Thing About Golf. <laughs>